Ridge community. It's good to be here. Uh, what an honor and privilege. I, I just got to say, and I don't know if he's watching, JJ, if you're watching, uh, we're all a little bit jealous, um, although we're going to have 80-some degrees here today as well, and then we'll start our Pacific Northwest summer complaint, which is, it's too hot, you know, that's, but I love your pastor. I really do. I've come to really appreciate him. I love his love for Jesus. I love his love for his family. I love his love for this church and beyond this church. I love his love for the church, his involvement with some pastors that he meets with and a group that we're a part of and just to be able to connect with him. And on top of all that, he is just cool. I mean, if it weren't the, the professional snowboarding thing, then the mountain biking and surfing. I mean, he just, he just is cool. He, he's the only guy I know that can use words like stoke and rad in the midst of a sermon uh, out of Leviticus, and it seems to fit. He's just the coolness factor is off the off the charts, and I'll just say this: I met Robert this morning uh, here for the first time, as well as Zoltan and and Cody. You guys are all here for the first time. Come back next week. Don't don't judge your church on this, because you want a cool pastor. You come back next week. Uh, JJ will be here, and I, I just I just love and appreciate him. Appreciate uh, the honor to be able to be here today. I also really appreciate the bridge. Uh, you as a church, your community, what you've done here in Whatcom County over the last decade or, or better. And in the last year, being in this space, which is a, a beautiful answer to prayer and what God's provision. I don't know if any of you are old enough, uh, long enough Whatcom County folks to remember. I used to play pool in this room. Um, anyone remember when Chiquetti's had their pool hall here? And it, was, it wasn't pool hall like some of you were thinking. It was legit. Um, but I used to play pool. I'm so grateful to be able to be in here this morning. Nate, thank you and your team for leading us in worship uh, to be able to connect. One of the things I love about your church and the, uh, the tribe that you're affiliated with is your absolute love, exaltation, and commitment to God's word. Absolutely love that and appreciate that. I tell my church, if our love for God's written word doesn't push us to a deeper love for the living word that is God, then we're nothing more than a religious book study, book club. And I don't, I don't think that you're a religious book club. I believe that your love and commitment to God's word leads you to a deeper love and commitment and devotion to the word that is God, and that is, is Jesus Christ. As, uh, as Pastor J.J. said, you guys have been walking through the book of Mark. When he asked me about preaching today, I said, well, tell me where we are in Mark. And, I'll, and he said, no, just, just do your own thing. We'll get back to Mark. So next week you'll get back into the book of Mark. Today we're going to do something a little different, but I am glad uh, to be with you. I wonder if we could just pray right now. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for uh, your abundant blessings that we sang about this morning, that, that Christ, uh, man, your righteousness, we're, we're, we're draped and clothed and robed in your righteousness. And because of that, we are faultless, not on our own efforts, but on what you've done through your son. And so I pray that as we gather uh, today, as we look into your word, that your word will meet us right where we are. Some of us come in here with burdens, with concerns, with fears, with, with heavy hearts. Some of us come in here exalting on a mountaintop, rejoicing. And Lord, you know all of that. And by the power of your spirit, you know how to speak to each one of us. And we just want to receive what you have for us today. And we pray this in your name for your glory. Amen. In 1970, uh, my family moved from Ruston, Louisiana to Vancouver, Washington. Um, I was seven years old at the time. My dad was a pastor, and the church in Vancouver, Washington, which right across the river from Portland, Oregon, had called uh, him to be the pastor of this church. And so we moved. 
And uh, my mom still actually still lives there. But as a seven-year-old, uh, we moved to this new area, new town, and my dad was the pastor. And there, was, there were some other churches in the Portland-Vancouver area that were affiliated with the tribe that we were a part of. And one of the things they would do, I think on a quarterly or maybe a, even a monthly basis, is they would get all of the youth groups together for a roller skating party. And they would all come together, and they would go into this roller skating rink, and it was in downtown Portland. It was a kind of a sketchy area under the Hawthorne Bridge down there. It was called the Imperial Skating Rink. And this, again, some of you aren't old enough to even know what a skating rink is. But I'm going to tell you, this was old school skating rink. No DJ back there with vinyl. This is the guy with the Wurlitzer organ. I don't know if any of you remember that stuff. I mean, he had the Wurlitzer organ. He would play, and up in the rafters, there's percussion, and there's the, the wind chambers and all the pipes and all this, and you'd skate around, and, and we would go to this. And because my dad was the pastor, I got kind of grandfathered in on these youth group gatherings. I was only seven or eight years old, but I get to be with the middle school and high school kids, the big kids, and go to these skating parties. And we'd go upstairs in this skating rink, and there you'd check in, and you'd get your skates, and there was the concession stand, and uh, maybe a pinball uh, machine or two, and then some seating area. And then this, this big skating rink that, to me, looked like a football field. It was huge. And all this, the, you know, getting your skates and the concession stand, the seating was all on one end. But on the far end, which really did seem like it was a mile away, the far end of that skating rink was just a wall with these windows that would open. And you could hear the, the traffic, uh, the Hawthorne Bridge and all this. And it was way off in the distance. So I was skating. And skating is really, that's a generous term. I was shuffling on wheels with a death grip on the handrail. That's what I was doing, a little, little shaver trying to get around. And it, it just kind of working my way around this skating rink. And after the skating party had been going on for about an hour or so, I was on my second lap. And I was out on the far end of the, the, the wall there. And over the announcer, this, this guy in the wheelchair says, it's time now for a couple skate. So get your couple and everyone else clear the rink. And I was not really listening. I'm just kind of trying to make my way around. And all of a sudden... All the lights went out, and then the mirror ball started, so there's these flashing lights, and then these colorful lights started going, and people were going off of this skating rink, and then there were people that were holding hands, and I was out there, and I was looking around, and it was dark, and flashing lights, and all this, these colorful lights, and these shadows of these people, these couples, and I couldn't see my mom, and I couldn't see my dad, and one of the couples skated by, and this big kid says, hey, kid, get off the rink, it's couples only, and all this was going on, and it was terrifying to me, it was paralyzing to me, I was gripped with this fear, with all of these lights, and flashing, and people. And, and no mom and no dad and I just began to cry can I get a little sympathy <laughs> I began to cry thank you thank you and as I'm standing there crying with all of this going on seemingly out of nowhere like an eagle swooping down on its prey <laughs> my father skated up behind me and wrapped his arm around me and picked me up and I could tell it was my dad with those big old hairy arms. <laughs> that smell of aqua velva. <laughs> and he whispered in my ear, Bobby, you're okay. Aww. He knew my name, and I knew his voice. And my dad and I couple skated. <laughs> my little skates just dangling. And me dieseling. <laughs> and we couple skated. And at that moment, at that moment, nothing had changed, but everything was different. Even though I skate in the shadow of the couples, I will fear no evil. 
my dad was with me. The circumstance was exactly the same, but my perspective was completely different. And that's what I want us to talk about today. And I want to just acknowledge right up front, some of you are facing some stuff right now that's got you terrified, some uncertainty, some fear, some difficulty, some hardships, some struggles you're going through, and it's way more than a flashing light in a, in a roller rink. I get that. And I don't in any way want to downplay the pain, the difficulties, the struggles, the uncertainty, the fears that you're facing. I, I don't want to in any way just like diminish that at all. What I want us to do is look at a truth and a principle out of God's word that has been been helping the people of God walk through difficulties for literally for thousands of years. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He said, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And at first glance, you could say, that seems irresponsible. That, that seems like just avoiding. You know, that seems like just pretending like burying your head in the sand don't don't look at this stuff and that's not what he's saying here he's not saying just take a pollyanna approach to life and just pretend like there's not difficulties or you might say well that that seems like like kind of just another positive thinking kind of a deal this is kind of a norman vincent peel you know tony robbins a joel osteen kind of deal. let's just think positive thoughts here and i want to say i am all about positive thinking i love it i love that we get to choose our attitude every single day I love a glass half full more than half empty. I love that we can choose to, to have a positive. I'm all about that. But I want to say there are times you need more than just a positive attitude. You need more than just a bumper sticker. You need more than just a Christian platitude. You need more than just too blessed to be stressed, kind of a little slogan. You need more than Hans and Franz just trying to pump you up. You need more than Matt Foley kind of giving you some encouragement so you don't live in a van down by the road you need more you need more than someone saying you're good enough you're smart enough and doggone it people like you you need something greater and i think what we will find is that the principle of god's word is is not about denying reality it's about expanding our perspective so what I want to do today is I want to look really, and we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures, but I want to really look primarily or focus in primarily on one verse of scripture. It's a very familiar verse to many of you. Many of you have quoted it. Some of you have quoted it and didn't even know it was in the Bible. Some of you have quoted it and you knew it was in the Bible, you just didn't know where. Today you're going to find out. And some of you quoted it and you knew exactly where. So it's going to be a review for you. One verse that I really want us to focus on. And I will say this up front. It's going to take some time to get there. Like, I'm going to give you some backstory. I'm going to set this thing up. So you're going to have to hang with me. And if you don't want to hang with me, it's a great time for a nap. Just go ahead and snooze. We'll, we'll, let you, we'll just let you nap, and we'll wake you up when we get to the verse. Because you're going to be going, are we ever going to get to that verse? We will, but it's going to take some time. The verse is found in 1 John. Let me give you a little uh, background on that. 1 John is, is generally agreed upon that it was written by a guy named John, of all things. Now, John uh, was one of tw the 12 disciples, and many believe that he was the youngest of all 12 of the disciples. He had a brother named James. They were also known as the sons of Zebedee. That was, that was their dad's name, which I think is just kind of, it's a fun name, you know. Hey, dad, Zebedee doodah, you know, whatever. So sons of Zebedee. They also got a nickname, which is really kind of a cool one too, sons of thunder. So they're brothers. They're part of this inner three, you know, three the Peter, James, and John, they're the disciples of Jesus, and John writes some books in the Bible. 
he writes a gospel, and it's called the Gospel of John. And then he writes these little ones, these little documents. It's called First John, Second John, and Third John. And, and then there's the Book of Revelation. But these are there's like John, and then First, Second, Third John. It's like he's not real creative when it comes to writing titles for his documents. I mean, it's kind of like George Foreman. You know, George Foreman had five sons, named them all George Foreman. Honestly, I mean, seriously, you can, if you don't believe it, Google it. Not now, but later. Named all of his sons George Foreman. There was George Foreman Jr., and then George Foreman the third, and then the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. And he said, I wanted my sons to all have something in common. Well, I got that. All right, so John says, I want all my writings to have something in common. So he's got John, and then First John, and then Second John, and then Third John. So we're going to look at First John. It's also generally agreed that he had been the pastor of the church in Ephesus for a while, and that this was written to that church in Ephesus. And the thing that's interesting is probably about the year 90. The thing that's interesting is this book that we call 1 John, way in the back of your New Testament. If you have your tablet or phone, you can just kind of dial it up. If you've got the old school with the pages, it's way in the back and so small you just about miss it. But it's not so much a letter as much as it is a sermon that he writes to this church that he's pastored, which is brilliant. And I say this, and, and J.J. would repeat this, I, I would sure, or, or agree with me. It's brilliant to write out a sermon, because when you just preach a sermon, especially before the days of internet or, or MP3s or, or what have you, the shelf life of a sermon is really quite short. Us pastors, we're not arrogant, arrogant enough to think that you remember sermons like we do. We know that if you still have it at lunch, we're doing good. The shelf life of a sermon is very short, but if you write it out, man, it's there, and you can go back to it. It's like having, having them on the internet where you can go back and re-listen to or re-watch, but to have it written out, and not only that, but this sermon's written out, and 2,000 years later, we get to benefit from the sermon that he wrote out. So he writes this sermon out in, in 1 John, and he writes to these people who are struggling with some things maybe very similar to us. This is what I love about God's Word. It's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and it is as relevant to today as it ever was. And you'll see this. These people who are living in Ephesus that he's been the pastor of, this is their circumstance. And see if this sounds at all familiar. They are politically frustrated with their political leaders. There's economic uncertainty. There's widespread social division. They live in a culture of moral degradation sexual promiscuity, and religious and spiritual confusion. Does any of that sound familiar at all? It's just like our world. And he writes to, this, to these people who've been impacted by circumstances and situations and the culture and the world around them, and in the last thing he wants to do is for them to deny the reality. He wants to expand their perspective in the midst of their reality. I mean, because not only are there those things, they're a part of the Roman Empire, which the Roman Empire was, you know, coming up on, on the apex of, its, of its, the pinnacle, uh, just it was a rising empire, it was huge throughout the, the known world, but it was ruled by emperors. And while the Roman Empire was great, there was a wonderful thing called the Pax Romana, this peace of Rome. That there, there was relative peace because they had overtaken it. It was a fear-based peace. I mean, yes, it was peace, but it was relative. You get out of line, you're going to find out in a big hurry. That's why crucifixion was such a big deal for the Romans. It wasn't just to punish the person who had done the wrong. 
It was to send a message to the rest of the world. You don't want to follow their example. It was this fear-based peace. Uh, and, and on top of that, some of them are old enough to remember. This, remember, this is about the year 90. Some of them are old enough to remember when Nero was the emperor. And in, in the year 64, some of you are familiar with this history, Nero set Rome on fire. But he decided, instead of him taking the blame, he would blame these new group of people called Christians. And there was widespread persecution. And Nero was, he was just wicked to the core. He would take Christians and he would wrap them in pitch and set them on fire to light up his garden parties at night. He would take Christians and he would sew animal skins around them and put them in an arena and then let wild dogs and wolves and lions go out and attack them and tear them apart. He would put them in there for the gladiators to kill. Some of them remember this. It was just a few years, 25 years earlier. And some of them probably had parents or uncles or brothers or sisters who had lost their lives under the persecution of Nero. And they remembered the price that had to be paid for those who were followers after Christ. Now, Nero has come and gone, but now there's a new emperor in Rome. His name is Domitian. Domitian ruled from 81 to 95. And Domitian had this reign of terror. He was effective, but he was ruthless as an autocrat. In fact, he would kill some of his brothers and some of his senators if they didn't fall in line with him. Now, there's not 100% agreement on this, but many believe that under Domitian's rule, there was a second wave of persecution against the Christians. In fact, in a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox wrote this book. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, he wrote this about a law that came into, uh, and came into to being during Domitian's reign. This is what is written. No Christian once brought before the tribunal, should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. That was the law. If you're a Christian and they bring you in, if you will not renounce Jesus as your Lord, you will be punished. So they live with not just a threat, but a very real fear that if they're going to continue following Jesus, life could be very difficult. In fact, life could be ended for them. And they're living in Ephesus. Ephesus, this huge Roman city, very important Roman port city, a massive city. The, the theater in, in Ephesus, the ruins are still there today. It, it's, today it'd be in what we call Turkey. But the, the theater in Ephesus sat 25,000 people. This, this is a huge city. I mean, if you've ever been to a concert uh, at the Gorge in George Washington, that uh, amphitheater seats 20,000. The theater in Ephesus seats 25,000. But the crown jewel, what Ephesus was really known for, was the temple to Artemis. Artemis, this, this idol, this Greek goddess. The temple, if you've ever seen the picture of the temple of the Parthenon in Athens, the temple to Artemis eclipsed that one. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And because Artemis, one of her traits was a goddess of fertility, the acts of worship that took place in the temple were absolutely unthinkable. The immorality that took place. And they live in this culture, and some of them remember. You can read this in Acts chapter 19. Some of them remember that there was a time when, when the church began to grow there in Ephesus, and Demetrius, who was a silver worker, got people all riled up because the Christians were telling people that these man-made idols were not really gods at all. 
and they got all upset, and there was a riot that took place. Again, read this on your own later, not in the next 20 minutes or so. Acts 19, there's this riot, and some of them remember that. Some of them remember that riot and the difficulties of being a Christian in Ephesus. It's a hard situation that they're facing. And if that's not enough, some of them come out of the Jewish faith and their Jewish brothers and sisters, they're accusing them of following this cult, being in this cult with this cult leader and they're making up rumors and they're rejected by their own people. On top of that, within the church, and this is part of why he writes this sermon, there's some false teachers that have come in with some conflicting and very confusing messages about Jesus, that Jesus either was human or he was God, but he couldn't be both. And if he was human, he wasn't God. And if he was God, he wasn't human. And all this stuff, there's all this confusion. And on top of all of that, there's this spiritual warfare that's going on. And there's this spirit, if you read in 1 John, the spirit of the Antichrist is very evident all the way around them. So you understand they have every reason to feel heartless and hopeless and and discouraged and afraid. Everything that's going on. And John does not in any way want to deny that reality. He wants to expand their perspective. Because John gets it. John understands hardship. I mean, John was a young man, maybe like 17, 18 years old when he first started following Jesus. And he heard Jesus say, if you want to be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. He knew. He heard Jesus say, anyone who wants to save his life will lose his life, but anyone who will lose his life for my sake will find it. He not only heard those words, those weren't just these ideas and concepts. His brother James, you can read this in Acts chapter 12, his brother James lost his life under Herod. Because he was a follower of Jesus. He lost his brother. He knew it was like, on top of that, like he's the last disciple standing. All the rest are gone. Not because they lived long, wonderful years and and died happily as old men. No, they had been killed because they were followers of Christ. And here he was. He's the last one standing. And on top of that, he remembers Nero. He remembers that persecution. He remembers what they went through. And as far as Ephesus, he had been their pastor. He knows about the false teachers. He he gets it. And Domitian, if he hasn't already, he will be exiled to the island of Patmos by Domitian. So John gets it too. And he gets it that, that their life is hard and that there's fear and there's struggles and discouragement. Now, I told you it was going to take us a while to get to that first verse, didn't I? Are you still with me? All right, the four of you that are with me, let's keep going. So, so when I was thinking about this whole idea of, of the, the, the concept, the principle out of Scripture, of don't deny your reality, but expand your perspective, I thought about an Old Testament example. We will get to this verse in First John. I do promise you that. But there's an example of this that takes place in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha is the man of God. He's the prophet. And, and Israel is there, they're going on, trying to, to go on with life. And there's a king from the north, from Aram, who wants to attack Israel. Only one little problem, one little issue is every time he plants an attack, God whispers to Elisha, here's what the king of Aram is going to do. Elisha goes to the leaders of Israel and says, hey, don't go there. There's an ambush there. Stay away from that area. He's going there. And so every time he goes to attack Israel, they're not there. He's frustrated Beyond measure, he says, okay, who's the mole? Who's leaking this? Who's the spy? Who's telling them 
where we're going all the time. And they're like, it's none of us. They got this guy named Elisha. God tells him. And when God tells him, then he tells them. So this king from Aram, he says, then that's it. Forget Israel. Let's take care of Elisha. Let's get rid of Elisha. If we can get rid of Elisha, then we can have some success. So they find out where Elisha is staying. And under the cover of night, they send all of these, these, these warriors and horses and chariots, and they completely siege the city at night, completely surrounded, so there's no going in or coming out. In the morning, Elijah and his assistant, his servant, uh, wake up. The servant goes out, I don't know, probably opening the curtains, getting ready, to goes up, and he looks around, and all of a sudden he realizes they are completely surrounded. Like, this is legitimate issues here. There's a reason to fear. There is a reason for discouragement. There is a reason for hopelessness. They're completely surrounded by the Arameans all the way around. They can't get out, and they know. He knows. This is it. Lights out. This is the end of the story. And I love what Elisha says to him. This is found in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. He says, don't be afraid. He starts in, don't worry. No, he doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. He says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. This is why. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I think this servant's probably going, all due respect, man of God, I, I hate to question your sanity, older prophet who is getting older. I'm not sure who we are. I don't know who you've got, a little mouse in your pocket. I'm not sure what the story is here, but more are with us than are with them can't you see and Elisha basically says you can't see and he prays and he doesn't deny the reality of yes we're surrounded but he expands the perspective and the servant's eyes are open and he begins to see that all around all around in the mountains uh, all around yes they're surrounded by the Arameans but the Arameans are surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. The situation hasn't changed, but now everything is different. And then, I, I love this. Again, you can read this one on your own. This was stolen by, by George Lucas years ago. You remember that scene in Star Wars where he says, these are not the droids you're looking for. Remember that one? Okay, that's the best scene. He stole that out of Second Kings 6 because... Because Elijah goes out there, and all of a sudden, these Arameans are struck blind, and he says, this is not the town you're looking for. <laughs> Serious, read this. This is not the road you're looking for. It's right out of Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars is right out of Second Kings. Okay, now, with all that said, this is the longest intro of a sermon you've ever heard. So you say, JJ, come home and save us from this man. Okay, so that's the intro to the sermon. So, so John writes this letter to these people who have all these struggles politically and, and culturally and, and Rome and, and Domitian and, and Ephesus and Artemis and the false teachers and all that. And he doesn't want to in any way deny the reality of what they're facing. He wants to expand their perspective. And so he writes in 1 John chapter 4, if you're there, if you want to follow along, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He writes, and he starts this way, and I'm, I'm going to use uh, the NIV, and I'll point out some words that are different if you're using a different translation. He says this, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. 
you. I, I love that. You. He, he, he says, this isn't just theoretical. This isn't just some ph- philosophical idea. This is profoundly personal. I'm talking to you, dear children. Now, some of your translations will probably say little children. Um, and that could seem like it's a little bit degrading, a little condescending. Oh, you little kids. That's not what that means at all. Remember that John has been their pastor. He has shepherded them. He's now in his 70s or 80s. He's an older man, and he sees himself as their spiritual father. He's led some of them to the Lord. He has discipled them. He's taught the word. He's shared the gospel. He's buried their parents. He's done their weddings. I mean, he's, done, he's been their shepherd. So when he says to them, little children, or you, dear children, he's talking as a spiritual father. And while that's true, there's an even greater, deeper reality that he gets at when he says, you, dear children. Because just earlier in chapter 3, verse 1, you you don't have to read this, I'll tell you. Chapter 3, verse 1, he writes this in his sermon, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. He's lavished on us that we might be called the children of God. And that's what we are. So when he says to them, little children, he's not just saying, I'm your spiritual father. He's saying, you are children of the most high heavenly father. The one who's aware of what you're going through. The one who cares what you're going through. The one who will provide for you. The one who will protect you. The, the one who will never leave you or forsake you. You're his precious daughter. You're his beloved son. He says, don't you understand? You're children of God. And not only that, you, dear children, are from God. Yes, he's He's your heavenly father, but don't forget your source. You're from God. Like you were created in his image. Yes, your parents created you, but it wasn't without God. I think about those beautiful verses in Psalm 130, which, 139, which, by the way, I'm just going to toss this in here and I'm not trying to start any fights or whatever. This, I want to tell you, this is why I believe in the sanctity of life. In Psalm 139, when the psalmist writes, for you know my inmost being. You knit me together when I was in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. When I was knit and woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And when I awake, I'm still with you. He says, don't you understand? You're from God. You're created in the very image of God, not just created in the image of God. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Son. It's what we sang about this morning, isn't it? That it's the blood. The, the, it, earlier in that sermon, he talks about Jesus being the atoning sacrifice, the big fancy church word for that. He's the propitiation for our sins. Have J.J. tell you about that one, okay? He's, it's, it's his blood that's purchased us. It's his righteousness that covers us. And he has marked us and sealed us and filled us and empowered us with his spirit. So he says, when you, dear children, children of the Most High God, you're from God, you're created in the image of the Father, you're redeemed by the blood of the Son, and you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, don't you forget who you are, and more importantly, don't you forget whose you are. Does not deny the reality. He reminds them and expands their perspective. He says, you, dear children, you're from God. And you have overcome them. You have. Like past tense. It's already done. It's a foregone conclusion. You have. He doesn't say, eh, 
If we can get you to fire up your, uh, you know, your attitude, you might make it through this one. If we can get you to believe in yourself, kind of get your self-image a little better, you, you, you have a chance on this one. We're hoping that, no, 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 he says, you have overcome. This is more than just a Kelly Clarkson song he's singing to them right now. It's not just a little train that could. I think I can. I think I can. You know, what does Romans 8, 37 say? That we are more than conquerors. You know what? Because we're really strong, because we can do it, because we believe in ourselves? No. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. How can we be more than conquerors? It's because Jesus conquered sin and death and the grave and the resurrection, and that's how we have this. So he says, yes, your situation, your perspective, it's, it's all... The situation is the same, but your perspective can change because you are children of the Most High, and you have already overcome. And again, it's not because of anything they've done. It's because of something that someone else has done. And then he gives them, and this is the phrase that pays. This is the one that some of you have quoted, and you didn't even know it was in the Bible. or You didn't know where it was. Now the secret's out. And then he makes this statement. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because, because you got a good attitude? No, 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 no. Because you believe in yourself? No, 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 no. Because we got you all fired up? No, no, no. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That truth. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. The one the one. Do you know the one? Do you know the one he's talking about? The one who is the creator of the world. The sustainer of the world. The redeemer of the world. The very object of the world. The one that speaks universes into existence. The one, as it says in Isaiah 40, who marks out the heaven with the span of his hands and calls out the stars by name so that not one of them is missing. That one, the uncreated one, the eternal one, the all-powerful one, that's the one within you. That one, as, as, as Paul writes in Colossians, this, this beautiful picture that, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things are created by him. Things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or in Philippians 2, where it says this one, this Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Listen, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the one. That's the one. The name above all names. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he says, the one that the universe cannot contain. Grasp this. The one that the universe cannot contain dwells within. 
So no matter what circumstances you face, no matter what situation, no matter how real the threat, the fear, the hardship, the difficulty, the hopelessness that it feels, don't deny that. Expand your perspective because there's one who's greater. He lives within you. Now, he doesn't deny the reality. Greater is that one than the one who's in the world. There's a reality. There's another one. The enemy of your soul, our adversary, the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, the one who roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy, there is another one. But they're not equals. Not even close. That one that dwells within you, remember the one that you were made in his image, redeemed by his blood, filled with his spirit? That one is far greater. Far greater. I just think John wants them to live with this transcendent perspective. This perspective above their circumstances, beyond their current reality, not denying it, not pretending, not sticking their head in the sand, but being aware in the midst of this, I have one that will never leave me or forsake me. He's fully aware and he fully cares. He will provide and he will protect. I'm his daughter. I'm his son. And I wonder, I wonder if John, when he's writing this sermon out, he thinks back, I don't know, 50 years earlier, 60 years earlier, when he was a young man, maybe 21 years old, and on a Thursday night in an upper room, and they're, they're celebrating the Passover, and, and Jesus does some crazy things that night. He washes their feet. And then he takes this part of the Passover, the bread, which they had done every year their whole lives. And now he's saying, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup, which they had drunk in, in the Passover every year their whole life. And this is my blood of the new covenant. And in that upper room, he begins to share some things. And there's a whole passage of what happens in that upper room that Jesus teaches. John is the only one who records it in his gospel. Read John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. It's called the upper room discourse. The other disciples don't talk about this. John recorded these things. And the things that Jesus taught them that night, about being the vine and the branches, but knowing that Jesus' reality was going to be dark in just a few moments, he would face an arrest and betrayal and denial and desertion by all of his disciples and then crucifixion and then even having his father where he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? He knew that reality. And he knew that their reality was going to change the next day. And their whole world as they knew it would collapse around them. And I wonder if John thinks back to that night. And one of the things that Jesus said when he says to them and looks at them in the eyes says, I've told you these things, that in me, you might have peace. And Jesus does not deny their reality. John 16, In this world, you will have troubles. Does not deny that. He expands their perspective. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And because I have overcome the world and I'm in you and you are in me, then you have already overcome. It's this transcendent perspective. 
it's what Paul would write about when, when he says, this idea that God would dwell right within us, that, that we would have this, this God, this one, like a treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's not us. And again, he doesn't deny reality. We're, he says we're, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're, we're struck down, but, but we're not destroyed. He says, listen, we always carry around in our body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ could also be revealed in our body. Later, a few verses later, he says, all this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Can I just push a little pause right here? That's why I'm thankful for the bridge. Because what God has started, he's continuing on in your midst, and the grace of God that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to, to the glory of God. Amen? Amen? And then he goes on, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't. Doesn't deny that reality. He says, while outwardly we're wasting away, he expands our perspective. Inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Doesn't deny the reality. Our light and momentary afflictions, we have them. Expands our perspective. Our achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. And what is unseen is eternal. Don't deny your reality. Expand your perspective. Now what if? What if that principle, that truism, wasn't just a divine reality? It was our reality. And what if we just decided we weren't going to deny the hardships, the difficulties, the struggles, all, all the, the, the uncertainty, the concerns, and the fears, but we were going to expand our perspective. And what if this wasn't just a sermon we heard on a Sunday morning when our pastor was in Hawaii, but this was a reality that we began to live in every single day. That passage in Psalm 139 when it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are some of them. Where to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. What if every morning when we woke up, before we put our feet on the floor, we didn't give ourselves a pep talk. We gave ourselves a reality check. That every morning when we woke up, that we would just remember, I'm still his precious daughter. I'm still his beloved son. I was created in his image. That hasn't changed. I was redeemed by his blood. That hasn't changed. I'm still marked, sealed, filled, and empowered by his Holy Spirit. None of that's changed. I've overcome because I'm more than a conqueror because of him who loves me. That hasn't changed. And I don't know what I'm going to face today. And I don't know what uncertainties I'm going to come up against. And I don't know what barriers and what hardships and difficulties and roadblocks I'm going to have. But I know that I'm not doing it alone. Because the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in this world. I hope you don't think I'm disrespectful. But what if? What if every morning when we start waking up, what if God was there as excited as a little kid on Christmas morning? 
And what if God was like, are you awake yet? Are, are you awake yet? Hey, 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 are you awake? Because I've been waiting all night to, to I, I got an idea, I got an idea. What about today? What if we couple skate today? What if we go through this day and I hold on to you? I'm going to tell you something, friends. Our brothers and sisters have lived in that reality for thousands of years. And we can too. It's our choice. It's not just positive thinking. It's not irresponsible pretending. It's living in the reality that the one, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in this world. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to close with a song. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much for this truth. And we thank you that you will not leave us or forsake us. And that we can do all things through Christ. And that we will have troubles in this world, but you have overcome. So I pray that this would become the reality of our life that we live in every single day. To live in a way that honors and glorifies you and the power of your resurrection. We pray this in your name.